Welcome everyone to the second episode of Traverse, a climbing podcast. My name is Greg Redlosk, and first and foremost, I want to thank you for listening. It's been a while since the first episode came out, and uh, that's because I was out on the road for a bit over a month doing a climbing trip that took me from New York City to Colorado, Utah, California, and back. This episode essentially chronicles the trip, but also explores the idea of uh, the dirtbag lifestyle that became kind of prevalent as we went along, and yeah, a few other things as well. Yeah, without uh, further ado, here's the episode. I sat on a wooden picnic table in Camp 4 in the shadow of El Cap and started climbing gear with a new friend, Selma. She'd spent the day before on the wall climbing the Royal Arches, a mega-classic 15-pitch climb that took her and her partner Madeline something in the realm of 18 hours to complete and then descend. The next day she'd be going up again, a different route. I don't remember the name. It was my last night in Camp 4, in Yosemite. Tim, my climbing partner for most of this trip, had already flown back to New York, and a big part of me lamented that I wasn't going to be going up on the wall with Selma. Then again, I'm hardly qualified for a climb like that. I have virtually no experience with track climbing. As we sat there going through her gear, I had to constantly check to make sure I was doing the right thing. I was pretty much just an extra set of hands, an unskilled laborer in a campground full of experts. There was a fire going, and there were five of us sitting around and prepping and eating and talking about the next day's climb, but also the last few days of climbing and hiking. Days and nights in the valley were unlike any other. Time didn't have much sway over us. We climbed when we had energy, ate when we were hungry, slept when we were tired. I very rarely knew what time it was at all. I'd spent a week there and wished I could stay forever, but there are strict rules about how long you can stay in Camp 4, in the valley. Besides, I had to eventually drive home, those 3,000 miles to New York. Funds were running low and I had to get back to making a living. It had been a month since I left in my 84 Subaru GL station wagon and I had been hemorrhaging money. I hadn't really saved enough for the trip and I was getting by now mostly on credit. <laughs> we finished lining up cams by size and got the day packs ready. Some kind of coconut curry was bubbling over their camp stove, prepped by Hannah while we prepped her climbing rack along with the others. This group tended to eat a bit better than I did. I was pretty accustomed to a steady diet of rice and beans, and they got more creative. We ate, drank a bit of beer, got tired, and the girls went to sleep in their tents. I sat outside a bit longer and just looked up at the stars, a sight you yearn for after years in big cities. I could barely see the outline of El Cap covered by the clouds and darkness, the whole valley is surrounded by these majestic granite monoliths. They're more than aesthetic natural monuments. They're markers of the history that's played out on their sheer faces over the past century of climbing. I learned all the stories, or, well, a lot of them. There have to be thousands of stories I haven't heard. I learned them before I went out. Stories of the Sierra Club in the 1930s, of John Salaith, stories of Royal Robbins and Warren Harding, John Backer and Jim Bridwell, Dean Potter, Alex Honnold. Sitting there, alone... A slight chill in the air as wind funneled through the valley. I was overwhelmed by where I was, what I'd done to get there. It's effectively pointless at the end of the day. Climbing, that is. You go up, you come down. The rock doesn't change. There's no proof other than the occasional GoPro shot that it ever happened at all. It's a bit like traveling in that sense. You leave, you set off, you get there, you turn around, you come back. And then you're home, sitting in that same coffee shop as always, typing and writing and procrastinating, and absolutely nothing's changed. Except that everything's different. The climbs stay with you. 
Just the way, the sight of these walls, the feel of this rock on my skin is something I'll carry with me always. I'll forget about it all the time, but that doesn't mean it won't be there. I sat there in Camp 4 and thought and wondered and dreamed of this history that I was only barely brushing up against and felt good, happy, tired, worn. I didn't want to leave. This was Yosemite. And this, right now, is the era of the Dawn Wall, of climbing inching its way into the public consciousness. This might well wind up being the time in which climbing becomes an Olympic sport. More and more non-climbers are being introduced to the sport, predominantly through the ease of access to climbing gyms around the country, but also through media coverage of people like Alex Honnold, free soloing extraordinaire, and events like the summiting of the Dawn Wall by Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen. The New York Times has been heavily covering the sport in the last year, and the death of prominent climber and also general badass Dean Potter once again made headlines. All of this has caused, or at least contributed, to a massive influx of new climbers chalking up in climbing gyms, with plastic holds and sterile, safe-ish environments, finding themselves enthralled by the fun of launching themselves from plastic hold to plastic hold. It's almost bizarre to me that an event like the Dawn Wall, which is somewhat reminiscent of old-school siege climbing, albeit free rather than aid, spawned so many new climbers who find themselves in gym where bouldering tends to be the most popular form of climbing. Funnily enough, the popularity of American bouldering owes itself at least partly to the same place that spawned this media frenzy in the first place, it's Yosemite. Since the Sierra Club started making annual trips in the 1930s, American climbers have been fascinated by the granite walls adorning the valley floor. There have been generations of climbers bred on Halfdone and El Cap. Yosemite is also where bouldering became an end in and of itself for the most part. And the bouldering problem, Midnight Lightning, is a must-see and must-attempt, even if it's way beyond our grade level. It's way beyond my grade level. In the simplest terms, Yosemite can be all things for all climbers. Yosemite is Mecca. I set out west from New York on my own, a pilgrimage of sorts. Yosemite was my end goal, but I had a bunch of other spots I planned on hitting on my way. Climbing was something that had just gotten under my skin. <laughs> I'd been climbing seriously for a bit over a year, and I was hooked. I'd even just started working at my local climbing gym. But in a lot of ways, I'm something of a fraud. I'm inexperienced. I have the right sort of car, but I'm really just imitating the dirtbag lifestyle for a month, and I'm not even really a hardcore climber. I mean, I barely ever even get on lead. I boulder all the time, but... Mm. And camping out in my car on the way made me nervous. Even though it's something many climbers have embraced, it was new to me. Somehow it kind of felt less than genuine. I say that because it's not like I was uh, really detached from the world in any way. I had my cell phone, I had my computer, I stopped by Starbucks for Wi-Fi every now and then. I don't know what I expected from the dirtbag lifestyle, but really it still feels like what I did was kind of this non-genuine impersonation of a real dirtbag climber. On the first day of the trip, I drove to Chicago and spent the night at a friend's apartment. I spent the next night in a car park in Aurora, Nebraska, about 120 miles west of Omaha, it's a park where they allow uh, RV camping. I don't think tent camping is really allowed. There are a few motorhomes already there when I pulled in after dark, probably around 10 p.m. after a full day's drive. I found a picnic table and heated up a can of soup I'd purchased from Trader Joe's in Chicago. I was using a really old propane stove I got for free, and I'm always slightly worried that it'll blow up on me, but so far so good. The bugs are bad, so as soon as I finished eating, I retreated to the rear of my station wagon. I'd put the back seats down into the floor and laid out my sleeping bag in two pillows. 
I barely fit with all of my gear, and even as short as I am, I still couldn't lie down and straighten my legs all the way. I slept curled up in a ball, wishing I'd remembered to put down a sleeping pad first. A metal rail or something that was part of the car floor kept digging at my side. It was hot, and I didn't want to open the windows more than a crack for fear of mosquito infestation. It was a choice between sweating it out and itching for the next week. I went with a former, and I slept maybe five hours, which is more than I expected. The next day I drove to Denver. Once again, I relied on the kindness of friends from years ago to sleep at nights while I spent a few days climbing out in the front range, mostly at Carter Lake and Horsetooth Reservoir, both near Fort Collins. The minutiae of the climbing here isn't particularly interesting to talk about. I mean, if I'm honest, describing boulder problems rarely is. My second day bouldering outdoors and climbing Colorado, I climbed at Horsetooth in the morning before heading back to Carter Lake that evening. During midday, I found myself perched at a random coffee shop slash bookstore I encountered in downtown Fort Collins. As I sat there, trying to think of anything about this trip that might actually be interesting to write about to anyone who, you know, isn't me, I felt, well, lonely. And obviously I was seeing friends and climbing in picturesque locations and all of those things that look great on social media, but I was also in it for the long haul, mostly on my own. Or at least that's how it felt. I'd driven west alone, and everyone I saw along the way had their own lives, work events, etc. I'd see them for a bit before they had to go to work or class or whatever. Literally all I had was climbing. It got me pondering that kind of lifestyle. Is, is, is this it? Is it this feeling of loneliness punctured by intermittent bursts of great climbing with good friends? And how was it that I could already be having doubts and getting despondent after only a few days out on the road? I met up with a friend of mine named Sarah who I'd first met while climbing in Squamish on my last climbing day in Colorado. We made numerous attempts at this stiff V5 in Carter Lake called Kahuna Roof. It's full of dynamic movement and shitty holds. And the boulder itself is this gigantic, hulking thing lying right next to the beach, maybe 100 feet up from the water. The roof didn't go, but it was still an excellent place to climb. I'm pretty sure Sarah said something deadpan about the problem being pretty cool, with the air of someone who has seen some other pretty cool climbs in her day. In her defense, she'd spent the entire summer in Squamish and lived in Colorado, so she probably has. Also in her defense was the fact that we were heading to Joe's Valley in Utah next. There, in Joe's, I learned just how fun bouldering could really be outdoors. Don't get me wrong, I love bouldering just about anywhere, but damn, Joe's was just pure, unadulterated fun. I left Colorado on a Thursday, with tentative plans to meet Sarah at the food ranch in Orangeville, the closest town to Joe's, about 20 minutes from the boulders. There's little to no cell phone service in the campground, so it was important that we plan ahead as much as possible. The drive from Denver to Orangeville was an interesting one, as the car has trouble even with the smallest of hills. Crossing the Rockies resulted in hours of driving at roughly 25 to 30 miles an hour uphill, barely matching speed with giant semi-trucks. I did finally make it with just a little daylight remaining. I quickly set up camp and went to explore some of the boulders. I didn't climb anything that night, but I familiarized myself with my surroundings and appreciated a pretty epic sunset that I was lucky enough to catch from atop a smallish boulder near Wills of Fire, a climb that would become something of a nemesis to me as the week went on. The food ranch that I mentioned in Orangeville is this really weird phenomenon. It's a grocery store slash gas station that provides for pretty much all of the shopping done by town residents. Peppered throughout the store are signs that say things like, we heart our climbers, and bags of climbing chalk and finger tape lying the shelves of their outdoor section, alongside the more standard camp stoves and sleeping bags, etc. Yeah, this store basically has a bit of everything you could need. The stranger thing, though, is the mix of people who wind up shopping together. It's a small town, 1,400 people as of 2010. It's pretty Mormon and pretty conservative, which is at odds with a lot of the climbers I know, or 
at least the ones I know personally. And yet there's plenty of coexisting that goes on here, since this is also a place that climbers can go for things like indoor plumbing and Wi-Fi. I didn't notice any incidents while I was there, though I did once hear an older guy in camo, literally full-body camo, mocking the We Harder Climber sign. On my first day of climbing at Joe's, I ran into a girl, uh, whose name I kind of sadly forget, uh, down by the Riverside Boulders, and we spent the morning climbing together, working mostly on the Angler, a classic V2 that felt way hard for me, followed by Kelly's Arette, a V5 that I actually nabbed in fewer attempts than it had taken for me to send the Angler, which felt a bit ridiculous, but these things happen when some climbs play to your strengths and others don't. From atop the Angler, I can see a pretty fantastic-looking problem called low tide across the river. It's a V6, but it seemed maybe doable, and I badly wanted to try it out. After Kelly's Arette, I went into town to eat and use some internet before returning to the boulders. I set up one of my GoPros on the side of the river that I'd already been climbing on and prepared to make the river crossing. I was filming it, naturally, so they could use it as B-roll for the video I'd eventually make of all the climbs we were doing in the area. I figured it looked like a cool shot, and it really would have been. The water level is high, and the river was moving pretty swiftly. Waltzing through with my pads slung over my back, shoes clipped on, would have looked pretty good. But here's the thing. I'd never made this crossing before. I wasn't sure where the best footing would be, and as it turned out, I absolutely did not pick the right part of the river to try and cross. As I waded out into the water, barefoot, with my pants rolled up to my knees, I felt the current pulling at my legs, willing me to follow its path downstream. I resisted and wandered my way to the half point of the river, which was probably about 50 feet wide where I'd chosen to cross. I took another step and felt my foot drop way down. I had stepped off the edge of an embankment and down into a spot where the river was far deeper. The water swelled up to my chest, and I was thrown off balance, surprised not to find sandy earth where I expected it to be. There was an instant where I struggled to keep my body upright and nearly succeeded, but the second I thought I was out of the woods, I slipped and fell and was pulled under. I was alone, submerged for a moment in that cool, rushing water. Nobody in the world knew I was at that moment. I hadn't told anybody where I was going specifically. Who would I have told? None of my friends were there yet, and the girl I'd climbed with earlier had decided to head home. It was a truly frightening moment, even though most of the river wasn't actually that deep, wasn't rushing that quickly. I'd been caught off guard and feared momentarily for my life, which sounds dramatic, but really, I was terrified. As it turns out, I was pretty lucky. Crash pads apparently float, and mine kept me from being fully consumed by the river. As I bobbed back to the surface after that initial fall, I felt the pad floating. I spied a boulder that ran out over the water and desperately swam towards it. I managed to get a hand on it and hold myself there as water rushed past. I collected myself and then made my way towards the shore, soaked and shivering. I sat down after throwing off my pads and inspected my climbing shoes. They were fine, albeit wet. I turned out to be lucky as hell that I decided to film while crossing, otherwise my film equipment would have gotten soaked as well. After a while uh, of just resting and catching my breath, I wandered over to low tide, the problem I wanted to try in the first place. I stared at it for a few moments, but I just did not have the heart or the energy to jump on. I was spent and I hadn't climbed anything at all. At least I survived. The only positive from that afternoon was meeting a group of climbers who were staying in the same general camping area as I was. They were all strong climbers and they welcomed me in and invited me to climb with them and to hang out at their campfire. Of this group, one of them, Skylar, had been in Joe's for something like a month and their campsite was pretty well set up and stocked. Crash pads everywhere, plenty of folding chairs, a fire pit well stocked, slack line and clothesline set up. They'd prep for the long haul. The next day, I drove to Salt Lake City to meet Tim, my friend from the city, who'd volunteered to meet me out in Utah and spent a few weeks climbing there in Yosemite. 
I grabbed him from the airport, and we drove back to Orangeville to meet Sarah and a friend of hers named Cam, who had also decided to make the trip down to Joe's from his base in British Columbia. You, there's always been something of the counterculture in climbing. These people who have essentially rejected material wealth, at least for a while, in order to spend the prime of their physical lives scaling up and down boulders or cliffs. I've always drawn the comparison between the dirtbag climbers I've met in life and the Dean Moriarty archetype of Kerouac's most famous work. It's inherently selfish in some ways, startlingly environmental and conscious in others. There's this frenetic energy I associate with Dean, with dirtbags, and with climbers in general. But specifically, these people who live out their lives in vans or cars or just set up shop in a new place for a month at a time literally just to climb. I met tons of this type on my trip, but there were two in particular that stuck with me. Skylar, the guy who'd been in Joe's for a month, was one of these. Cam, who lived in his red van and slept on a Metolius trifold crash pad, was the other. Cam was someone I really enjoyed talking with. Uh, originally from Australia, it seemed like he just lived his life doing pretty much whatever he wanted, whatever he found interesting. He'd come to North America, also seemingly for the heck of it, though I'm sure there are actual reasons, I just don't remember slash know what they were. Uh, and he found himself camped out in Squamish for the summer before finding work in Calgary. He'd been planning on coming down to Joe's anyway, and since he's friends with Sarah, he decided to join us for the few days that we were there. He's a strong climber. He's climbed El Cap multiple times, and at least a few of those were solo journeys. Um, not free soloing, just solo ropes climbing. He's obviously an experienced drag climber who only relatively recently seems to have gotten into bouldering, and yet he's still a much stronger boulderer than I am. He also just has an absolutely genuine passion for climbing. He lives out of his Chevy Astro so that he can facilitate his climbing as much as possible. He bought the thing for about two grand and spent about two grand decking it out. And he hasn't had to pay rent in a year. It's a pretty good deal when you think about it, if you're willing to sacrifice certain amenities, which apparently he is. I like to think I would be too, but I'm not sure. It's an adventurous lifestyle. I worry too much about what my life's going to be like in five years to take the leap. I probably shouldn't, but there it is. And then there's Skylar, who I mentioned earlier as well. He climbs as hard or harder than I think anyone I've ever actually met, much less climbed with. He hits V11 slash V12 and has only been climbing for two and a half years. It's insane. And the only way that sort of feat can be accomplished is to be incredibly, almost absurdly dedicated. And he is. He climbs constantly. When I rolled into the campsite and noticed his area first, as I said, it was littered with crash pads, coolers filled with energy drinks, a slackline set up, and a clothesline with shirts out to dry. He, along with a few of his friends, was set up for the long haul. He's a different kind of dirtbag than Cam, in the sense that he has a home base, a home gym, hell, even a stationary home itself. But he still takes months at a time to just go out and climb, live in a tent in a desert or the mountains or whatever. I'm not sure how he affords it. I climbed with him and his friends a few times. There's just something inspiring about being out there with them. It's that there's absolutely no fear. No fear of failure, of falling, of getting hurt, of being out of their element. I carry a lot of fear with me when I climb. It's easy to have falling in the back of your mind. It's easy to worry over much about the landing, about the top out, about whether or not this V5 feels more like a V7 for you, and therefore you shouldn't be able to do it, or even be expected to do it, etc. That wasn't an issue for them. Maybe it comes from being young, Skylar's only 18 or something. Or maybe it comes from just having more experience on real rock. Maybe it's just a personality type. But it's an ability to filter out fear that allows someone to climb that way. Hell, it's part of probably what allows them to live that way. I could go into more detail about the rest of the climbing we did in Joe's. There was a lot of climbing that happened, and it was truly excellent to be there. It's a pretty cool wilderness, currently unregulated, though access issues are always a thing just about everywhere. 
But still, it feels so much more open and free-spirited than those bouldering locations where you line up, pay for a day pass, or have to have a guide to even go out into the boulders in the first place. It's a perfect meeting of adventure, great rock, and the potential for solitude, at least when I went. There's just nobody else around except climbers. Basically, Joe's just reminds you why climbing is a thing that gets under your skin. If Joe's is fun, Yosemite is pure awe. Sure, our first night there, we couldn't find a place to sleep and wound up camping in a car two miles outside of the park in a pullout on the side of the road, and sure, we had several days of bland climbing and Tuolumne wiped out by rain. And sure, the bouldering that we did was tough, slippery, and in some places treacherous. But really, it was the being there that captured my imagination. Our first morning in the park saw us camped out at 4am for those few coveted spots in Camp 4, the historic climbers campground. After we set up tents and slept a bit more, we explored the bouldering around Camp 4 and the surrounding areas. I kept being struck by the walls surrounding us, Half Dome, El Cap, Washington Column, the Cathedral Spires, and everywhere we went, we interacted with other climbers who were just as stoked on being there as we were. Several of those climbers we interacted with, the climbers I mentioned at the beginning, Selma, Hannah, Ida, they took us to the alcove swing up on El Cap. It's a rope that hangs down from a massive overhanging section of the wall. You can stand and sit around on the slab below, grab onto the rope, clip in with the grigri, and jump out over the valley floor about a thousand feet up. It's a spectacular thing to watch, and it's something we'd never have found on our own. We spent the rest of that day, a rest day, with them hiking up to see the waterfalls and just generally exploring this incredible place. And that's the point, really. Meeting other people, other climbers, sharing experiences, figuring out that there's more to climbing than just sending the hardest thing you can and then going home. Shared experience is at the heart of what make, makes climbing so amazing, at least for me. And Yosemite kind of embodied all of that. It made me think, I don't know, it made me think more about where I was and the people I was with than about what I could accomplish myself. I felt a part of things, a part of this history. And the bouldering itself was fun, <laughs> but also very, very hard. Tim and I were both out of our element, stylistically, and I kept falling and failing to exhibit any element of patience that would allow me to send anything at all difficult. I definitely got frustrated, but when we got back to the camp, when we were driving the valley loop, I kept getting distracted from that frustration by the sheer presence of the place. And yes, the valley has problems. It's touristy. There's too many people, too many beaten trails, too many cars, just too much civilization. And Camp 4 can be loud. There's little seclusion to be found if you stick to the popular areas. I mean, that should be obvious. And yet, I found the place, especially Camp 4, to be inspiring. I'd driven 4,000 miles to get there and had another 3,000 just to get home. But it was worth it. It was a culmination of weeks of travel and climbing and exploration. There's so much energy in Yosemite. So much desire, ambition. Climbers who care about what they do enough to spend years of time and tons of money just to be able to go up and down the walls. And while I'm a boulder at heart, I found myself looking up at those walls and wishing more than anything to someday find myself atop them of my own power and my own will. I know that was an abrupt finish. We spent tons more time out west exploring and climbing and taking rest days in Vegas. Sort of rest days. Not really rest days. But I don't know that any of that is as relevant as the simple summation that a month's worth of dirtbagging, sort of, answered like nothing at all. 
It only left me with questions and more things I wanted to try. It seems like a lonely life. I know I doubt myself often, and it'd be that doubt I'd be living with, exchanging for the opportunity to be, well, free. To climb where I want, sleep on my own terms, and really explore what it is about climbing I find so exciting. Its ability, both literally and figuratively, to take you to places you have never gone otherwise. Is that a trade I'm willing to make? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd be willing to sacrifice a semblance of financial security. I'm not sure I'd be willing to spend so long away from the people I care about. I'm not sure if I have the guts. But I'm pretty tempted to find out.